One of the Bible's favorite analogies to the Christian life is an athlete. Being a Christian, living for Jesus is like being an athlete. And we're told in several places this analogy. The title of our message today is Keys for Running the Real Amazing Race. If you're not familiar with The Amazing Race at all, it's a, a TV show where people are in different locations and they're given clues and hints and they go and they try to finish before other teams. Me and my daughter have always been persuaded that we could win that show. If we could just get on that show, me and Jessica, we would go to town and um, that, that it, it would fit our personality for sure. Although who knows if that would really be the case. But the truth is, is that we have something that is a far greater um, end than the amazing race. And that is the, the real amazing race that you and I are called to run the race until we are done. Now, also the Bible compares the Christian life to soldiers as well. Good soldiers don't get entangled in the things of the world, the Bible says. Let me just give you a few examples of passages that talk to us about the Christian life being compared to a race. Probably the quintessential passage for this is Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 where it says, therefore, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, and if you read Hebrews 11, you know that's the hall of faith. And he's giving us all of these examples of people that have gone before us and who have lived by faith. So these guys are cheering us on. He's not telling us that we have people from heaven looking down at us, watching what we're doing. But it's this, it, he's, he's building an arena with all of these saints that have gone before and he said, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. That passage tells us that this is an endurance race. This is not a sprint, it's a marathon. The passage tells us that each one of us has been given a race. I can't run your race, you can't run my race, but you have to run your race. And we wanna run the race until the end. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 25 is another passage that talks about the race. It says, do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it. And everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. In other words, if you're really serious about running a race to win it, today people will run in 5Ks and they just want to finish. They're really not interested in trying to win or they're running a marathon and they'll just want to be able to finish the marathon. Years ago, and I mean years ago, I, uh, I did a couple of races on mountain bikes. I couldn't do most of them because they were on the weekends, but I did a couple of races and I, and I thought maybe I would win, but I realized once the race started, I wasn't going to win. I think in the two races that I was in, I finished 30 out of 100, which is pretty good, I thought, for a first race. And then I also finished like 32nd out of 125 in the next race. So that one was a little bit better. But I realized by the second race that I wasn't gonna win. I knew that there were people who were far better than what I was. But here the Bible encourages us to run the race in such a way because we are gonna, we're gonna cross the finish line. 
We are one day going to enter into glory and Christ is going to be there. And so we want to be temperate in all things. In 1 Timothy 4, 7, Paul says this. This is near the very end. And what he's going to say here today is near the end of his ministry. But he says in 2 Timothy 4, 7, 2 Timothy is the last book in the New Testament to be written. He says this, I have fought a good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. May that be where we are as we are looking at that last lap. We, may we be able to say the exact same thing that Paul said. Now, let me read to you this passage and let's just talk about where it's at in Philippians. If you've been with us for our in-depth study in the book of Philippians, then you know that Paul has a special heart, a special place in his heart for this church in Philippi and that they've shared with him in his finances. In fact, he's going to make a statement that no one else shared, but only they shared. Epaphrodites had brought him the gift and then Epaphrodites had gotten sick. And so Paul wrote a letter and sent the letter back with Epaphrodites so they could rejoice in seeing him and listen to the letter that Paul wrote them. He speaks to them about some people that are preaching the gospel for their own personal means in chapter one. You remember? And then in chapter two, he tells us that we are to be like Christ, that we're not only to live for our own interest, but we're to look out for the interests of other people. And then in the beginning of chapter three, he turns to legalism, that there are beware of the dogs, he says, beware of the mutilators, that there are some false teachers that are coming in and laying a legalistic trip on them. And so we talked all about that last week. Now Paul comes out of it. And in the middle of that, he says, let me boast a little bit. I was a, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews, born of the tribe of Benjamin, he says, um, a Pharisee according to the law, according to zeal, I persecuted the church, which is all things that he did and things that these, these guys prized, maybe not the persecution of the church, but they prized what Paul had achieved. And imagine what it must have taken Paul to achieve those things in his lifetime, probably from a child going to school, being able to become a Pharisee. There was so much that you had to memorize. There was so much that you had to do. And as a young man, now a Pharisee, beginning to persecute the church because he felt that the church was standing against Judaism. And so Paul says this after he brags about all of these things. And then he says, all of these things I have counted rubbish. I have counted them all to be like dung. All of these accomplishments mean nothing. So then Paul says this, and let me read it to you. He says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. We're going to see in a moment that what he means by that is, I'm not in heaven yet. Not perfect. I haven't attained. We haven't crossed the finish line. That's what Paul's talking about. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I might lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has laid hold of for me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching towards those things which are ahead. All of those things that Paul said that he had achieved, he says, I will forget those things. Those achievements, I'm going to put them behind and I'm going to press on towards the goal that is ahead. I press towards the goal, the prize, the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this same mind and in everything, and if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. 
And I love the way that Paul talks to dissenters because no, he knows there's some false teachers there. There's some people who are going to be upset. And he says, if any of you guys think otherwise, God will take care of you. He'll straighten you out. I guess when you're an apostle, you can say things like that. I'm not quite sure as a pastor you want to try to say things like that. Nevertheless, he says, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us be of the same mind. He knew that there were dissensions in the church of Philippi. And so he wants there to be a common desire to run the race that God has given them effectively. Now, let's take a look. I find, I find six keys in this passage to help us be able to run the race as effectively as we possibly can. First of all, it's to evaluate where you are in the race or that Paul evaluated or we should evaluate the race. In verse uh, 12, he says, not that I have already attained or am already perfected. And then in verse 13, brethren, I do not count myself to have, uh, to have apprehended. In the passage that is before this, he had said something very similar. All he's saying here is that he hasn't finished the race. He knows it's not done, that he's in the middle of it. He wants to run the race well. And none of us have apprehended the race yet. Now, he's going to talk about where we are in the race, that we're in the race and we want to finish the race that God has given us, but we haven't apprehended it yet. Therefore, we want to run the race that God has given us with, um, with a fervency. In 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7, Paul says this, excuse me, Peter says this, in this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you are grieved by various trials. So our race sometimes gets hindered by troubles and difficulties that we face. He says that these various trials are that the, gener uh, the generousness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to the praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The genuineness of your faith. God allows difficulties. It would be nice if we could just run the race and not face any difficulties, but God allows difficulties because he knows that the genuineness of our faith is so incredibly powerful. So the second thing is that he focuses on one thing. Paul says, but one thing I do. I, I'm reminded of Mary and Martha when Mary anointed the feet of Jesus and Martha objected. And Jesus said, she has done the one thing that is necessary. Paul says, I'm going to have a central focus. If you want to be effective at running the, running the race well, finishing the race and giving glory to God, then putting our mind on Christ, knowing that this is our priority, this one thing that I do. And Paul says, I've done this one thing. I think it can also change the one thing depending on our race and, and the kind of things that we do in them. I know Jesus said to the rich rung ruler, you lack one thing. Sell all that you have and give it to the poor and come and follow me and you will find riches in heaven. Which, by the way, I think was a serious offer to this rich young ruler. He could have actually have become part of what Jesus was doing and gained riches in heaven, but he was full of covetousness and he would not let that go. So Paul said this one thing that I do. The third thing that I see in the text is he says, forgetting 
what lies behind me. He's got one thing he's focused on, but he's going to forget what lies behind him. And for Paul, because of the context, we know he's talking about his achievements, being circumcised on the eighth day, being the tribe of Benjamin, being a Hebrew of Hebrews, being a Pharisee, all of these things he says, I forget those things that lay behind me. Are there achievements in your, in, before your time with Christ that you elevate above the time that you're spending with Christ? I, I would also say that forgetting the things that lie behind us would mean that we would forget our failures, that we would forget our sins since God drops our sins in the sea of forgetfulness. And the enemy is pretty good. He's the accuser and he's the tempter. We're talking about the, the arch enemy, right? The serpent, the dragon in the book of Revelation, the serpent in the book of Genesis. And he is the tempter. He tempts us. And then when we fall, he's the accuser. What an absolute creep. First of all, set on trying to get you to fall and then as soon as you do fall, he says, what kind of person are you that you would do this thing? Well, this is the very thing that you tempted me with and now you're accusing us. But the Bible tells us that we have an advocate with the Father who is Jesus Christ the righteous. You know what an advocate is? It's a lawyer. Jesus is a lawyer. Maybe we should put the lawyer jokes away for good since Jesus is our lawyer. I like what uh, Skip Heitzig says which is that when we get up into heaven, Jesus is going to say to God, uh, Dad, Skip Heitzig is on my side. There's a special connection between Jesus and the Father, and we have him as our advocate. And in fact, in reality, we know that Jesus is the judge. The Bible tells us that all judgment has been given to the Son. And on that day, when the, on the, in the great white judgment throne, the books will be opened the dead will rise in what is called the second death. The first resurrection has those who are resurrected to eternal life. And then there's the second death and they will stand before Jesus and be judged. So the same judge becomes our advocate. He is our advocate. I'm not sure that that would fly in the court in the, in the United States, the courts in the United States, that the judge is going to be my lawyer. Do you have representation? Yes, I do. It's the judge who is my representation. But what a great thing for us that in eternity, the one who will judge is also your advocate. In Luke 9, 6, but Jesus said to them, no one having put their hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. So we're thinking of Paul saying, forgetting those things which lie behind. And sometimes we put too much on our achievements instead of humbling ourselves before Christ and saying, I now have got to run forward. Sometimes we put too much on our failures and they hang on to us. But instead, we put our hands to the plow and move forward because Jesus has taken everything, every sin we ever committed on the cross and has forgiven us totally and completely. In 2 Corinthians 5, 17, it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away and behold, all things become new. And I love that passage. I quote it a lot. I quote it in altar calls that if anyone's in Christ, all things have passed away. Everything in your life changed now and you've got a whole new beginning that is set in front of you. So Paul says, forgetting the things which lie behind me the fourth thing that we find in the text, 
he says, and reaching forward to those things that are ahead. And this is the idea of a runner who's got his mind set where he needs to go. He's running as fast as he can run in whatever length of race that he's running. But can you imagine if a runner were running down the track, constantly looking behind him? It is, a, is a runner who's running a 100-meter dash going to win if he's looking behind him? If, if anyone, any lengthy amount, they better be pretty good if they're going to keep checking behind them. But it's one thing that you never see. You never see someone at the Olympic level running and suddenly looking behind them to see what's going on. In fact, if they think they're ahead, they're just like going to put the hammer down and go. And so Paul says, I'm not looking behind me, but I'm looking forward and reaching forward to those things that are ahead. The Bible tells us in Galatians 6, 9, let us not grow weary in doing good, for in due season we will reap if we don't lose heart. That just means we just keep running the race. We press on towards the goal. We don't let things come in and distract us. The enemy would love to get us to stop running the race. And I think he does that through discouragement at times. I think he does that through depression. I think it's silly. I, I know there are preachers who will tell you that if you're a Christian, you're a genuine Christian, you're never going to be distraught. You're never going to be depressed. You're never going to face uh, personal crisis or difficulties. But the thing is, when I see the Word of God, I see people having personal crisis. For example, even great men like Elijah. Elijah, after having the victory over the 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel, all of a sudden turns and runs from Jezebel, finds himself depressed, wanting to die under a tree, and God shows up and says, what are you doing here? And I wonder if the Lord wouldn't speak that to us at certain times. What are you doing here? Why, why are you so downcast? And the psalmist, a lot of times, people will ask me every once in a while, where should I read in the Bible if I'm finding myself depressed? Philippians chapter 4 is one of them. We're going to get there here, not before too long. Got a couple more studies in three and we'll get to four. But whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's good, Think on these things. Don't be anxious for nothing but everything. With prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known unto God. But I also like the Psalms. It's interesting. You can't read too many of the Psalms before you find the psalmist saying something like, why so downcast, O my soul? The, the psalmist faced difficult and hard times. And for us to think that we're going to go through life and never experience them, I think is just not realistic. In Acts 20, 24, it says, But none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I might finish the race with joy and minister which I have received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And this is Paul. So Paul's saying, I want to finish the race God's given me and I want to keep running with the gospel. And one of the things that I love about Paul's writings in the gospel, if you go to the earliest letters that he wrote, this would be 1 Thessalonians, you find he puts an emphasis upon the gospel. You go to the last letter he wrote, which is 2 Timothy chapter 4, and you find that he has an emphasis upon the gospel that Paul hasn't changed in the decades of his ministry, he has continued to minister faithfully. 
James wrote about it in James 1.12, where he said, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, and when he has become approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who save him. So whatever it may be that may make you want to stop running, continue doing the good work God's called you to do. Just kind of put your, your nose to the grindstone, get back in the race, make sure that you're running it well, because God has a call. God's got a purpose for each one of us. And we want to make sure that we run it even as God tells us to do. The fifth thing that I see in this passage is that we are to run for the prize for the upward call of God. That is, we have been given eternity. And we are running here and now that we will one day burst into eternity into heaven. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. When you and I are running the race, when we're diligently seeking him, we believe that God is a rewarder. And to be honest, I find the concepts of rewards and studying on rewards in the Bible to be a difficult one to study. And I don't think I'm alone. I think, first of all, heaven, God being there, the presence of God, the glory of God is probably all the rewards that we'll ever want. We also see that the 24 elders in heaven in the book of Revelation cast their crowns down in front of the Lamb. And I wonder if the rewards that we receive, whatever those rewards are, that we might not cast them down. We also find that God tells us, and I think I have a passage here, a couple of them that talk about the inheritance that we're going to receive. I do. There's a, yeah, I've got one that talks about the inheritance. Uh, Paul, when he wrote to the Corinthians, it's a corrective letter from the very beginning. And one of the first things that he tells them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is that you have all things. He's about to tell them, I wish I could talk to you as to spiritual people, but you are not. You are carnal. There were, there were divisions among them. They were, some were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos. There were all kinds of problems. But Paul says to them, a struggling church with carnal Christians, you have everything. I wonder if we really grasp that, how that might change the way we live. You have it all. Ephesians tells us what he means. Ephesians says that we are co-inheritors with Christ. The Bible tells us that Jesus is the firstborn among the dead. The doesn't mean that, well, he was the first one to come out of the grave, but the concept of a firstborn is a position. The firstborn child that you had in their day would receive everything, and then the children after that would receive portions of what they were given. The Bible says that he's the firstborn and that we are co-inheritors with him. It's not like we're going to get the adopted child's inheritance. We receive it all. We gain everything. What an absolutely amazing biblical truth that you and I have been given everything in Christ. You feel like you got nothing? You got nothing here, but you got everything and everything belongs to you. And so in Proverbs eleven eighteen, still on this idea of pressing towards the goal, goal, running towards the prize of the upward call of Christ, 
It says, the wicked man does deceptive work, but he who sows righteousness will have a sure reward. We will receive a sure reward. And again, it's crazy because the righteousness that we're given is given to us by Christ and then we get rewarded for having righteousness. It's like witnessing. We are given the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to share Christ. The Bible says, in the whole, to, to, Jesus told the disciples, Acts 1-8, wait in Jerusalem and the Holy Spirit will come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth. So God gives us the Holy Spirit, empowers us to be witnesses. And then the Bible says that those that bring many to the Lord will shine like the stars forever. God's the one that does the work in us. He gives us the opportunities. We share and then we receive rewards. He gives us righteousness and then we receive a sure reward because of the righteousness that he gave to us. Colossians 3, 23 and 24, still talking about us running towards the prize, the goal, says, and whatever you do, do it heartily as unto the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. What Paul's talking about in Colossians is when you serve men, when you serve people, serve it like you're serving God. Really be serving God. You may serve people, but you're serving God through serving people and you want to do it wholeheartedly with everything that you have. I think of Mary and Martha having Jesus come over to their house. And I think of Martha doing all of the work to get the house ready. Can you imagine having Jesus coming over to your house at all? Could you imagine how perfect you would want your house to be? Guys, can you imagine how your honeydew list would grow? if Jesus were actually coming over to your house. And the Bible says, whatever we do for people, we should do it as, as though we are doing it unto the Lord. And so this, this, this running our race, stretching out for the goal, forgetting what lies behind, running the race that God has given us to be as effective and fruitful as we can. So I have a sixth, and, the, and this is, that we should be of the same mind. One of the things that was happening in the church in Philippi was that there was divisions among them. One of the things that I'm really blessed about Calvary Tucson is that there's not a lot of divisions among us. I, I'm not naive to think that there's no divisions. I've often said I like the fact that there are some that come to the church that disagree with certain things about the church but they come to the church because there's unity. When we all agree on everything, when we agree on everything the same, it's really easy to have unity. But when there are differences and we can put our differences aside to be able to have unity, there's something very powerful with that. But they were having, there was some kind of, uh, of a problem that had arisen, divisions that had arisen among them. And so Paul wants to address it again. This isn't the first time he's addressed it in the letter to the Philippians, but he wants to address it with them in the idea of running the race. So he says, therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind, and if anything, and if any of you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Again, that cracks me up that that's where Paul went. I guess 
when you are, when you are inspired to write the Word of God, you can say easily, and if you don't agree with me, God will show you. God will straighten you out sooner or later. I know I've said to people before, when we have a disagreement about something, you know what? The truth is out there. The X-Files, right? The truth is out there. Let's let God reveal that to each one of us. Reveal to us which one of us is believing that which is wrong. But he says that we are, as many as are mature, to have the same mind. If anyone thinks otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. In other words, he's trying to get them to stop arguing, stop having these differences, stop focusing on the differences, but focus on the things that they agree on. And he says, and if you think otherwise, God will take care of it. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have attained, we haven't attained yet, we haven't apprehended yet, we're going to cross that finish line in the future, but we're in the middle of our race right now. 30-something years ago, 40-something years ago, I started a race with the Lord. I'm still running that race today and you haven't yet apprehended it, but Christ has already apprehended it for me. And Paul's going to make that, well, Paul made that point earlier. Nevertheless, to the degree that you have already attained, which simply means you started your race. You've invited Christ into your life. And Jesus is the one who will apprehend it all for you anyway. And you're just running out the, the race that God has given you. Nevertheless, to the degree that you have already attained, let us walk by the same rule and let us have the same mind. That is, put the divisions aside. I do believe that there is, when, when we talk about a lot of doctrinal, um, denominational, doctrinal differences, I think to a large degree, Christ is not pleased with a lot of the divisions that take place. Paul, again, wrote to the Corinthians and told them that they were carnal because they were dividing among people. And I think that we can get carnal when we get really married to something that is, is not Jesus. And for example, I mean, maybe you grew up Lutheran. I grew up Methodist. Um, uh, Calvary Chapel, right? Calvary Chapelites. Uh, Calvary Chapel, you know, we're talking about putting the, the past behind us and running the race that God has given us to run. Sometimes such great things can happen in the past that you can get caught up in the past. And I think that this is a particular danger for Calvary Chapel because I think that God did such amazing things starting back in the 60s when Calvary Chapel was just a small church. Pastor Chuck had been a four-square pastor for a long time. He took over a church, as far as I understand it, was about 25 people. But then God began to move. By the way, he was in his 40s at this point. Pastor Chuck says that he never pastored a church before that that was over 250 people. In fact, here's what he said. He said, I would take over a good solid church of 500 and I would bring it down to a solid 250. That's what he said. <laughs> Isn't that great? And then all of a sudden, God had a plan and a, and a hippie by the name of Lonnie Frisbee got saved and then other hippies, then Greg Laurie, who was a hippie, and then other hippies got saved. And God began to do something in the 60s that was absolutely amazing. And I think that we can look back at Calvary Chapel and you can go, well, I wish I would have been a part of what God was doing there and miss out on what God's doing now, which is some... 1,800 Calvary chapels that are across the United States that are preaching the gospel, that are giving people an opportunity to get saved, and we should press forward. In fact, it's something that I, it's a statement I use with the staff. With whatever area 
that the staff is over. I like to use the term moving forward. Are we moving forward? You head over the children's ministry, you head over home fellowships, or you head over the men's ministry, the women's ministry. Our desire is that everything would be moving forward. We're pressing on towards the call, towards the race. What God has done here with us in the last 36, going on 37 years, is amazing. But we're not to get caught up in looking back at what God did because we're going to miss out on the things that God wants to have us, wants us to do. And I just kind of give that, as we come to the end of the study, I just kind of give that precaution because every once in a while I'll run into somebody who will tell me, well, I went to Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. I was baptized by Pastor Chuck. And there's always the temptation to say, what's God doing now? Those are some amazing things. But what's God doing now? What does God want to do tomorrow? Because there's people that don't know Christ. There's people around you who don't know him. And we're to press on towards that call that he's given us. And part of that is having the same mind. Now, again, this is a little bit of a, different, a difficult topic because there are some people who believe that unity is the secret. That if we could just get all the churches in Tucson unified, then the power of God would absolutely shake the city. I'm not so sure that's the case. I don't think God wants us doing it alone. I don't think God wants us to discount what other churches are doing. But I don't know that we have to have complete unity. There's, there's already unity, by the way. So it's already there. I, years ago, I, I played periodically on the softball team for the church. When I say years ago now, I mean years ago. I mean, you're talking the 80s, okay? And um, I showed up early for our game and um, Sun Life Chapel was playing in, in, uh, before us. And Gil Garcia, who's a friend of mine who pastors Sun Life Chapel, um, wasn't there. And they said, can you play? I said, sure. They didn't know how good I, they didn't ask how good I could play. They just asked if I could play. And I joined them. And so then we're sitting in the dugout and it's our turn to bat and we're talking. And one of the guys says, what church do you go to? And I said, Calvary Chapel. And they were like genuinely excited. Genuinely excited that I attended Calvary Chapel. They were like, I love Calvary Chapel, love Pastor Robert, which I'm really glad that they said that. <laughs> Instead of like, I really love Calvary Chapel. I don't know about Pastor Robert. Um, but a few minutes later, one of the guys goes, what, what's your name? And I said, Robert. And he goes, Robert, uh, last name? <laughs> I guess by that time, I think they were figuring it out. And I said, yeah, Robert Furrow. And, but I was really excited about the genuineness of their joy that someone from another church in town was a part of what they were doing. And I've always, since that time, I've always encouraged people from here that when you meet someone from another church, try to encourage them in their church. Try to be excited for them. Don't try to get them, you need to quit, you need to go to Calvary Chapel. But really try to be excited for them and the church that they're at because I believe it's a part of what God's doing. I just don't think that there has to be this, this unity with every Christian in Tucson in order for God to do great things. But here's the thing. God does use teams. God puts us together as teams and uses us that way. Listen to what it says in Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 11. This is one of my wedding verses, by the way. When I do weddings, this is one of the verses that I read. This is Ecclesiastes 4, 9 through 11. It says two are better than one 
because they have a good reward for their labor. The idea is that two people working together can achieve more than two people that are working separately. They're going to achieve two people's work, but when you get together, you're able to do more work, especially if you can co coordinate it really well. And then it says, for if they fall, one will lift up his companion. That's another part of being a, a part of the, the work that God's doing is that if one stumbles, there's someone there to help pick them up. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will be kept warm. But how can one be warm alone? It goes on to say, and a threefold cord who can break? The idea, this is the idea of a rope that has three different sections that are weaved together and makes it really strong. And God's saying to us that we are not alone in what we're doing, but we do it together. I love that the Bible tells us in Ephesians that God gives gifts unto men, pastors, teachers, evangelists. These are gifts that God has given the church. And then it tells us for what? For the, uh, for the equipping of the work of the ministry. In other words, my main job is not ministering, but equipping you guys to be able to minister. Now, let's take the word minister and change that to servant because that's really what it is, all right? I know we've added some different things to it, but it's really a servant. And by the way, it's a common household servant. You might say, well, I'm a minister. And if that means servant, I'm a special minister. No, you're just a common old servant. That's who we're supposed to be. But he says that we are to equip the saints for the work of servanthood. The job of a pastor is to get people prepared to be able to do the work that God's called them to do. And if we can do that together, there's a real power and strength that goes along with it. And I think it's something that the Philippians were lacking. And so Paul wrote it to them. So forgetting the things that lie behind us, let us press on towards the goal and the prize, knowing that whatever God has for us, that's the race for us to finish. Whatever God has done in, in the past, and I'm going to take it that more of my race is in the past than in the future. Who, who knows? Maybe I'll live to be 120. I don't know. But I do want to run the race that God has given me with my eyes focused on where God's taking me. And Paul is encouraging the Philippian church to do the same. And I hope that you are encouraged to be able to look at your life, what you're doing for God, evaluate where you are and determine in what part of the race are you in. Some are in the very beginning. Some have attained for a while, but we will one day cross the finish line and attain all of those promises. And what an incredible day that would be. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, we want to thank you that we're able to take this time, set our hearts and our minds upon you, and to consider Paul talking about this race that he is to run and how all of the achievements that he had achieved, he counted as rubbish, nothing, so that he could attain what you have for him. Father, thank you that you don't keep us looking back, but that you're using us and sending us forward. We think of our family, our friends, our co-workers, acquaintances who need to know you. We pray that we would live our lives in such a way that we would run the race efficiently before you. We pray that you would do a tremendous work in our lives. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.